1: Act as if what you do makes a difference. It does. And that's from William James. Welcome this morning to Off The Shelf Books, whether you're listening over at YouTube, iTunes, Google Play. There's just so many places where Off The Shelf airs around the world. So I want to welcome our, our guests. And I want to tell you I'm having some technical issues this morning. So I had to shut all my other apps down and just put up today's show and hopefully It'll be just fine. So I always move forward no matter what happens. Just keep rolling, keep rolling, keep rolling. So for those of you who have been with us for 18 years, I just always like to say thank you. If it's your first time tuning in to Off The Shelf Books, welcome, welcome, welcome to everybody to our Saturday, January 27th, the last Saturday in January. It's like we just celebrated New Year's. It January, last Saturday uh, in January is here Thank you again for joining us. We have a wonderful, talented, gifted author on deck for you today, and excited to introduce her to you. But before we do, I just want to ask you, and I've asked on the last couple of shows, how important is this something I, for, for me? Because something I went through yesterday, I got to refocus today, refocus, refocus on on really p- paying attention, practicing awareness. To what's going on around you, your thoughts—whether you're ruminating or just keep circling the same thoughts over and over—to take care of ourselves, because we all impact each other. As the quote says, "Act as if what you do makes a difference, because it does, including what you think." If you feel stuck, you 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 think there's a there's a, there's room for opportunity for improvement for your, your inner health, your inner well-being. I encourage you to get a copy of Heal Gorgeous. Your 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 inner guide, it knows the way. Your inner guide knows the way. And that book is by yours truly. Heal Gorgeous, Wisdom Within You Knows the Way. I encourage you to get a copy. It's a short read of poetic writings that I think will bless you. It's an e-book, paperback, or hardback. And it's selling well, and it, there has to be a reason for that. And I do encourage you to, to, to bless yourself, treat yourself with a copy. It's not a religious text at all, but to treat yourself to a copy of Hill Gorges, Wisdom Within You Knows the Way. And now let us go and meet today's special off-the-shelf guest. And today's guest is Martha Ann Toll. Martha is of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I used to live in Ben Salem, which is about 20 miles. My, maybe 20 minutes north of Philly. But she's a, she is a Philadelphia, Pennsylvania native who has a passion for education, classical music, and dance. She studied at the School of Pennsylvania Ballet. Whoa. For 26 years, she served as the founding executive director of the Butler Family Fund. Her writings have appeared in several media outlets, including NPR, The Millions, Blooms, The Washington Post, after the art, Los Angeles Review of the Book and Heck Magazine, Martha's short story "The Gigolo" was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Impressive. She has been a fellow at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts in Virginia and Southern France Monsoon Arts and Diary Hollow. Diary Hollow. She's a wife and a mother, and she graduated from Yale College. She received her law degree from Boston University School of Law. She is the author of the novel Three Muses. Her second novel, Duet for One, is scheduled to be released next year. Please, please, please treat yourself and visit Martha Ann and with the an E Martha Ann Toll online at marthannoll.com. And I'll spell it M-A-R-T-H-A-A-N-N-E. T O L L dot com. Again, that's M A R T H A A N N E T O O L dot com. We are just honored to have Martha Anton Jones on Off the Shelf this morning. I'm gonna go click her on live. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Martha.
0: Hi, Miss Prada. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for that beautiful introduction.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. It's Denise, Denise the Denise Turney, and that's fine. So happy to have you here with us. The first few questions I'm going to ask you, Martha, I ask every guest who comes on the show, just so to give our listeners a little background before we launch into talking about their books and their other works. So to kick off today's show, Martha, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up?
0: Sure. I grew up in Philadelphia in a very near in suburb, and my parents were um, first generation to get educated, and so they were super interested in all the good stuff, books, education, music lessons, dance lessons. And my dad um, didn't want to own a car for himself, so he lived really near, we lived really near the commuter train into Philadelphia, and My parents encouraged us, and we did. We really used the city of Philadelphia. In other words, we weren't those typical suburban teenagers. Like, I was in Philly six days a week for something or other, and I always took the train. My mother taught me how to um, take the train by myself when I was nine. And I also, very importantly, grew up in a family of four girls. I'm the third of four girls.
1: Okay. In Philadelphia, that just brings back memories, Memories of Center City, Philadelphia, I-95. Yeah. I ninety five. Yeah, remember all those right? memories. Roosevelt Boulevard. I remember all that. Now, when you were a little girl, when you were a kid, what did you what did you want to be when you grew up?
0: Well, first, I probably definitely wanted to be a ballerina, and I took ballet, and I loved it, but I really had no talent, and that's the kind of thing that I'll mess around with, even for little kids. Like, by the time I was 12, they were saying, you have no talent, blah, blah, blah. So that was probably my very first love, but I will tell you that I always want to be a writer. I was one of those geeky kids that was keeping a diary and vocabulary lists and writing stories and writing plays for my friends to act in and doing i, I you couldn't have found me without a book and that's still true
1: so what, who or what inspired was there a writer in your family did your mom and dad read a lot or your siblings read a lot who or what inspired you to pursue writing where did where did your
0: passion for books come from well i think yes to all those questions and so my mom um was she worked at home but she was a copy editor so she always had manuscripts on the dining she was freelance she always had manuscripts on the dining room table like the dining room table was a pile of laundry and a pile of uh, page proofs for books so she was a professional editor she was passionate about books my dad was also passionate about books and he was a lawyer but he loved to write and he wrote um, newspaper articles, and he had a little column in the lawyer newspaper that was actually about cooking and recipes. He had a lot of interest other than being a lawyer, and he wrote two books. So they were kind of maniacal about words and writing. They, They were, when people asked me what inspired me, I'm sure that it was my parents. They really wanted, they kept a big fat dictionary by the dining room table and an encyclopedia. This was long before you could just look everything up on your phone. And they, the I would say writing was in the water supply. <laughs> okay, okay.
1: Now your creative passions range from writing to dance to music. Tell us about your days. You said you, they, you, you don't fool around with ballet. You have it or you don't. But tell us about your days studying at the School of Pennsylvania Ballet. That always looks so hard to me. And before you answer, I had a, a colleague I used to work with who did – uh, dance and she professionally danced professionally and was in on TV and the music videos. Uh, but she said that it's it can really be hard on your body. It's like running a lot of marathons. It can be hard on your body because you're up on your toes. The, the way you have to hold your body isn't natural. Yeah. So, uh, but t- can you tell us about what was your experience uh, studying at the School of Pennsylvania Ballet? <clears throat>
0: Everything you said about your friend totally rings true for me. The injury rate for professional dancers is intense; it's really high. So, what I I love the feeling of that full body engagement, like a ballet warm up, is you got to start from your toes up to the top of your head to the tips of your fingers. You have this full body engagement during the warm up, which is. A huge part of the class, like it might be more than three quarter, half to three quarters of the class is warming up. So I loved that. And another thing that I absolutely, I loved the music. We had a live pianist who would play, accompany our dancing, which was amazing. And one of the most special things I remember about that time is because they had a professional ballet company associated with the school, I could watch them rehearse, and I was absolutely mesmerized by watching the dancers rehearse it's not like what you see on stage they're all wearing the w- ugliest clothing they possibly can like sweatpants ripped tights span, you know the, um, torn t-shirts <laughs> like plastic, they used to wear plastic pants to make their legs sweat so they would stay warm so it was like the real thing and you just saw all the work and the love and the engagement that went into that work so I just love those rehearsals
1: Oh, my goodness. How many years did you were you in it?
0: So I never, you know, as I said, I certainly never danced professionally. I started when I was a little tiny girl, like maybe age four. And I took Whoa. pretty seriously. But that was just kind of like play. But I, I took pretty seriously until I was in ninth grade. And then it was sort of like, this is not going to happen. And don't ask me why I felt like. If it wasn't professional, I couldn't do it at all. Like, I would never want any of our listeners to think that. If you can't be a professional, you can still have so much fun and enjoy it. But I was too serious, I guess. So I kind of stopped studying seriously after eighth or ninth grade.
1: Okay. That's a long time, though. Now, as it regards classical music, and I, I remember I was covering a story for America Online. They did these patches when I was in Ben Salem, and they they told me they wanted me to go cover the Ben Salem. Um, oh, it's just orchestra, and I'm thinking I'm not gonna like that music. I said this is gonna be so boring, <laughs> but I'm telling you, I loved it. I loved that it. That is I, cool. I love you, that. I I loved it. I said, oh my god, and this is why sometimes you you should try things instead of just assuming. You don't. You won't like something. You might love it. I absolutely loved it. Now, as it regards classical music, which I think is, looks so difficult to me, they were all volunteers. But as it regards classical music, how long were you mentored by Max Aronoff?
0: It, and what yes. Was that, thank you. And what instrument yeah, did you so, play? And what was that experience like? Okay. Well, thank you for asking. And I have to tell you, my novel that's coming out, Duet for One, next year, is all about my experience in Philadelphia studying with Max Aronoff. So I play viola, and viola is the, it's a little bit fatter than a violin. It's bigger and fatter, but you hold it like a violin, and it's lower pitched. It is the alto in the orchestra or in a string quartet, just like an alto in the choir. So rarely have the melody, but without the altos, you have no density, no nuance, no harmony in your choir. Same deal with the viola. The viola is on the inside providing harmony and sometimes rhythm as well. And Max was um, this elderly gentleman when I met him. I don't know. He might have been in his 70s. And he had the gift of the gab like you couldn't believe. And he had amazing stories. So he had grown up as a street kid in Philly, very poor family, and there was an organ grinder that had a monkey, and he used to follow it around, and his mother thought, oh, gosh, he really wants to do music. Really, he just wanted to see that monkey. But she got him a violin, and he was turned out to be really, really talented. And Curtis Institute of Music, which is a very well-known um, music conservatory in Philadelphia that started, I think, in the 20s, and it has always had free tuition. It still doesn't have tuition. So anybody can go. It's all about your talent. So Max got into the first class. He became one of the best-known viola players in the world, and he switched. Oh, yeah. as, I didn't do this, but as many people do, he started on violin, he switched to viola. But the big thing about him was, first of all, he had the most beautiful sound. You just like wanted to be around him when he played. It was so gorgeous. Second of all, he had a million pieces of advice that are life advice, like learn things in pieces. You can't, you know, you've got to practice. If you, you're, nobody was born, you know, talent's not going to get you anywhere. You've got to work. You've got to take things apart. You always have to work for a beautiful sound, even if you are not performing. And he had a lot of these things, and I kind of realized, even at age 15 or 16, these things were applicable to life. I think you might agree, Mr. Ronda. I don't really know.
1: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. Now, i have to thank you for your work for racial and social justice. Two more questions before we start talking about um, your novels. Can you describe the work that you do, uh, that, no, that went into you helping to found the Butler Family Fund?
0: Yeah. So the Butler family is a private family. I'm not a member. Um, they came into $10 million by accident. It's a much longer story. But anyway, they received this money and they gave it as, um, they give the money out as a philanthropy charity. So the $10 million acts as an endowment and they give the um, proceeds from it charity. So, to organizations that are doing social and racial justice. So I, the reason I say I helped found it, I'm not part of the family, but when the money came into the family, they wanted to hire a person to run it, a staff person. So I was lucky enough that they hired me. And our primary focus when the time I ran it was around housing and homelessness and criminal justice. And you do not get within an Anywhere near either of those issues, you're in racial justice immediately because black and brown people are not as well housed in the United States. The face of homelessness is unfortunately a black or brown person. Um, the prison system is incredibly racially poor, skewed against black and brown people. Gay kids become homeless you know, before other kids do. So all the things. And we also worked very, very hard to end the death penalty. So the way we did this was I was in charge of giving the money away. So it was my job to research organizations. It wasn't my money, it was their money. It was was my job to research organizations and give the money to the groups that were doing the most effective advocacy work on these issues. And I mean, it was a great job. I just learned so much from people on the ground who were doing the hard, hard, hard work of trying to make our country more just some people you will have heard of like Brian Stevenson who started the Equal Justice Initiative and he founded the Lynching Museum, the National Lynching Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. He's an example of folks that you would know. Um probably a lot of other folks, you know, leading leading black and brown advocates and um that is a really short description, but that's kind of the idea.
1: Oh, wow. Good good work. Good work. Uh in what ways Martha has your work? with dance, music, and the Butler Family Fund,
0: how has it that
1: enhanced your novel writing? We know in one instance uh, with your new book that the music with your work with Max, but how else has it yes. enhanced your writing?
0: So it's such a good question. I feel like a lot of us have, like, our left brain and our right brain. I can never remember which is which, honestly. But I have my social justice passion side, but then I also have this deep immersion in the arts. And in my writing life, I always did a lot of writing at my job because I had to write advocacy pieces. I had to write up memos for my board of directors so they would understand the work that we were doing. I wrote memos to the field. So I, wasn't, I was writing there, but it wasn't what I would call creative writing. My fiction writing, which is my novels, tends to be on the other side of my brain, which has, um, you know, it's interested In the in the arts, but with my book, maybe this is a segue if that's okay. With my book Three Muses, I realized I was bringing, I was threading those two sides of my life together because it's very much about the injustice of anti-Semitism. I am a Jewish person, and my book is about the impact of the Holocaust on one person, and and. And if you talk about one person, you hopefully can get a sense of all of the injustice of that, but it also speaks to other injustices as well.
1: Okay, you kind of led into my next question. If you can give our listeners an overview of your book, uh, uh, a little bit more of a broader overview of Three Muses.
0: Yes, I would be happy to. So the, the basic story is, Um, A family is tragically in line, a Jewish family, in line to go to the gas chambers to be murdered. And the mother of John, whose name in the old country was Yonko, he's a little boy. Mama's carrying his little brother. And Mama says to the S S guard, Yonko can sing and she saves his life in kind of a Sophie's Choice type way by getting him pulled out of line. And he sings, he survives because he provides entertainment by singing for the commandant of the concentration camp who murdered his family. So he was saved by that and he carries the terrible, terrible burden of having sung for the commandant. He makes it to America, he's adopted by a Jewish couple who lost their son in the war. And they take him to medical school, and he becomes a psychiatrist. So he's in the opening of the book, John is in Paris. He goes to the ballet, which he doesn't want to do because he's very, very, very traumatized by music. But at the ballet, he falls in love with a ballerina. So it is their oh. love story. But okay. <laughs> It's their love now, story, except, except I, I'm sorry to interrupt, the complication is the ballerina is having a very me-too type, long-term relationship with her choreographer. So they're really a trio, but John doesn't know that. you got to have some complication, right?
1: Yes. Now, what time period is the bulk of the story in? It sounds like it's when he's a... He's an adult. So what time period is it, in the 70s, 80s, Yeah. the bulk of the story? No, it's
0: actually, the bulk of the story takes place in 1963 um, before John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So you get the back of these two characters, but John is at the ballet in 1963, and the, most of the story takes place around that time. And then there's an epilogue that takes place in 1973.
1: Now, why did you choose that time period? Is there, was there a special reason why you chose
0: that specific yeah. Time period? Yeah, I mean it's not that exciting, but in order for John to be a young person who survived the Holocaust and came to America, it had to take place in that time period because I needed him to be in his twenties and thirties. So he, okay. did, he comes to America. He comes to America in 1948, and he was sort of like 15ish at that time. So those 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 dates had to work if that makes sense. That's not a very sexy okay. answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no,
1: no, no. Perfect. Now, describe for our listeners who's never been to New York City, and I always like books that bring out either the history, the real history that was going on in a location that the story takes place in, or I can feel like I'm actually there. So can, can you, for our listeners who've never been to New York, can you describe New York during the time Three Muses takes place What's it it like and what's going on in particular in the city during this time?
0: Well, first of all, at that time, New York City was much more of a working class, lower middle class um, city, right in the major parts of New York City. It wasn't as relatively expensive as it is now. So when John arrives, he's actually taken in by a couple who live in Yonkers, which is a town just outside of New York. And they have a little row house. Um, and a very modest life, but they have everything they need, and that there were a lot of lot a lot of people living in New York in that way, like you know, I guess I would say working class, but not 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 poor, not suffering, all those things. So they're suffering from the loss of their son. John is is sort of at the dawn, you know, he's getting trained to be a psychiatrist in the 1950s, and so his in order to become a psychiatrist. He has to have a therapy himself, and he has very unconventional therapy, which would not be done today. His his psychiatrist is somewhat insensitive and wants to kind of hit him over the head with his trauma, make him relive it, make him um, recount all the times that he was in the commandant's room with singing when he was uh, lonely without his family. He didn't know they had been murdered. Those techniques would have changed dramatically for today. They would be much more sensitive. But he trains in a mental hospital, which is, Mm. um, you know, a lot like Bellevue Hospital, which is the big mental hospital in New York. It's still there. But it's a tougher training, and it's, um, I guess I would say, a somewhat grittier city than it is today. It's it's been scrubbed up, and uh, New York has unfortunately become a lot wealthier. I mean, you know, and I say unfortunately because it's much harder to live there as a working-class person. Interesting.
1: That's interesting. I've been and worked in New York, and that's very interesting to me what you just shared. So thank you for sharing that. Very interesting. Sure. Now, introduce us, again, the, to Mr. John Curtin. You told us some about him. Mm-hmm. What dry, mm-hmm. what drives him? Is any, did any of his relatives come to New York with him? Do any of them come later? Could be a third cousin. Or is he always the only one in his family that came to the United States? And and, and what drives him? Is he really solely focused just on music?
0: No. Well, so I want to just, if I may, Ms. Rhonda, just give your listeners some background. When I talk about the Holocaust, I talk about the systematic murder of 6 million Jews across Europe from France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, all across Poland, Belarus, Russia, parts of Northern Africa. The Nazi Party had a very, very systematic way. They they captured Jewish people, they deported them, and they systematically murdered them. Many were murdered in the gas chambers that we are familiar with. Um, in the Russian front, Ukraine, Ukraine, uh, Eastern more of Eastern Europe, they were li- they were forced to dig their own graves and lined up 20,000 at a time and machine gunned to death. This was a catastrophic genocide and very much in living memory of my generation of Jewish people. I grew up with a lot of people who had survived either because they were hidden or because they were incredibly lucky, but the bulk of the Jewish population of Europe was was wiped out. And it is a tremendous tragedy that we carry with us in our hearts and in our um genetics, so John is not at all unusual it's very, very common. so when he is rescued by the Red Cross, whoever rescued him, he comes to New York he has nobody. So he has this burden of he's adopted by this beautiful couple, Selma and Barney, who love him. But he you don't get over that level of trauma where everybody in your family has been murdered. And also, we he has we have this difficult relationship with music. He doesn't want to hear it because it brings back the worst memories oh, of his life yes. and the, mm-hmm. his catastrophic losses, but he also knows it saved him. But also, you um you have two things you feel—you feel guilty for surviving. Why did I survive? But you also feel this tremendous burden to hold, to hold the memories of your people and your extended family. And I think this is something that I—I um, I hate this expression of the oppression Olympics. Like I never compare oppressions, but I think the similarities with a lot of Black people is coming to this country under terrible, terrible circumstances not understanding your background, not having the means to have access to your home in Africa, you know, what you came from, not even knowing where your name is from, why you were named, not being able to carry family history, and also carrying this unspeakable trauma of being enslaved and ripped apart from your family and have members of your family literally sold. There are some similarities in that level of sorrow and tragedy and the strength that it takes to make a life for yourself.
1: Mm. Now now Kateya, yeah, Miss Kate,
0: yeah.
1: can you tell us the Yeah, story I, I of call her
0: Katya. The, yep. Sure. Katya. Yeah.
1: What is her personality? Like? Yeah.
0: Katya. Is she Okay. okay. So Miss Rhonda, if I take a quick tangent. The the book's called Three Muses and the Three Muses of the title are songs discipline and memory. And they're not real characters, but they're ideas that thread through the book. So we kind of associate John with song, and we kind of associate Kati with discipline. So the, these are Greek ideas, and the Greek word for discipline, I don't speak Greek, but I did some research. The Greek word for discipline includes the preparation for prayer. It's kind of like, I think it's a cool thing, like, not just the discipline, okay, you have to work really hard to get wherever you're going, but a priest, when they prepare for prayer, should also have a kind of discipline to focus, to get clear their head and that kind of thing. So Katya's a little girl. Her mother, she grew up in Queens, New York, which is part of New York, and she, her mother is killed in an accident when she's seven, and she's an only child. So her dad and her dad's sister, which is her aunt, her dad and her aunt want to help her. So They get her ballet lessons because they think it'll just distract her a little bit from all the sorrow that she feels. And she really takes it and she's really good. So she works her butt off because she sees this as her future and this is all she ever wants to do. And she comes under the sway of her Russian choreographer, Boris Yanukov, and he grooms her and literally grooms her. Um, and I always think I should give a trigger warning, but I also want to be clear. This book was trying to look at this very realistically from the 1950s perspective where – The person who is making your career and putting you on stage and giving you everything you want professionally is also sleeping with you. It's very, very Uh, fraught, horrible. We see it every day. So she has a lot of complexity because of that. mm -hmm. And she has a second set of complexities that she is helping make the ballet. So she helps for us. They do things together. She's not just dancing them. She's helping to create them with her choreographer. And he's not giving her any credit. So it's a combination of things like she uh, lives together. He gives her the stage, but they're an incredible price to pay. And oh so when goodness. she falls in love with John, we got a problem. You, you always have to have a problem in a novel, and this is a big one. <laughs> so does she so love there you
1: go. Does she, Or does she think she loves him?
0: Yeah. So I thought about this so much. I feel like that's such an important question. And I think the answer is yes. And so I was worried, like, I didn't want this to be a political book. I wanted it to be real about real about what this relationship is like. It's not all negative. It's complicated. We feel upset. We wish she weren't doing this. But we appreciate the fact that she is having a real profession. She's doing what she wants to do. She owns the stage. So I think in their way, they love each other, but it's not emotionally grounded. It's much more grounded in making art. Uh,
1: now, John John, and I'm going to try to say the name wrong, Katya, they meet when yes. he goes to a performance she's at and he sees her. That's how they meet?
0: Yeah. So he meets her the first time. And he, he says to himself, how can I fall in love with somebody on the stage? I'm a psychiatrist. I know this is an illusion. I know it's not real, but still, I need to meet this woman. So he goes backstage to meet her, and um, he finds out she's from New York, even though she has a Russian name, but her Russian name was just given to her by her choreographer, so she would look like fancy Russian ballerina, and actually she's a girl from Queens. That was a very common renaming thing that happened for the stage. So ultimately, they meet again in New York, and that's part of the plot, so it's kind of a spoiler. I can't tell you what happened, <laughs> but uh,
1: they meet again. okay. And, can, you uh, introduce, yeah. can you introduce our listeners to some of the other major, I really want to know more about Boris. How did he get yeah. to the U.S.? But if you mentioned, uh, who are some of the other major and minor characters in Three Muses, and, and, and can you tell us a little bit more about their motivations and their personalities?
0: Of course. Of course. So Boris, nobody knows his background. Like, he's very secretive. He only ever wants to be in the ballet studio making ballets. So everyone, nobody knows anything about him. They know he escaped from Russia before the Russian Revolution or during the Russian Revolution in the teens, the 19-teens. He's completely driven by his art, completely. He can't go anywhere else. Yet he really does love Katya in his way, which we might say is very difficult Then we have Barney and Selma, who was a Jewish couple who adopted um, John and gave him all the love in the world. They're just salt of the earth. They're loving people. Barney's a pharmacist. Selma teaches um, John English. So they're kind of his stalwarts in this country. And then we have um, um, Katya has a friend named Maya, who's in the ballet company with her. Maya's a little bit of comic relief. She's like, Katya, you're too serious stop sleeping with Boris, get the hell out of there. He tries really hard to help Katya see the light, but Katya's like ballet, ballet, ballet. I don't want to think about it. And um, then we have Dr. Roth, who is John's psychiatrist. And there's a lot of interaction between John and Dr. Roth, and the difficulty that John has in addressing his trauma. That's also part of the book. Interesting. See, one
1: thing (laughs) I love about the Interviewing guests, and I also listen to podcasts. Is when the author starts to go deeper in describing the characters, the story, how the the inspiration behind the story. It makes the story that much more intriguing, and you just don't have the space in a, uh, a a a book description to do that. So I I love that's one thing I do love listening to authors talk about their books. It makes them that much more intriguing, and I have to tell you I love the cover. On three muses i just love that cover who created the illustration and how did you find the book cover illustrator
0: this is so interesting so to your first point miss ron i just want to thank you because you know if you spent i spent 10 years writing this book and to have somebody like you you know allowing me to enthuse to an audience is a tremendous privilege so i just want to say thank you for your interest so I appreciate you. So the cover of a book um uh, my story is pretty normal. Um, I have a wonderful publisher. They're based in North Carolina, Regal House Publishing, and the publisher is 99% of the time totally in charge of the cover. The author can maybe make a recommendation, but the cover hire the publisher hires the cover artist, and they have full say. So actually. I didn't have anything to do with the cover. I love it, but they have an artist, and I think she took a picture. I'm not sure how she did this, but there's a picture of the ba- a ballerina on the front that's very beautiful. And then she put barbed wire in front of it, and I kind of love that cover because it's the whole story of the book. You know, John lived behind barbed wire as a child. He, he saw his family murdered behind barbed wire, and yet he falls in love with this beautiful ballerina. So that pretty typical that the publisher makes the cover and I didn't even know this but for children's books which are extremely dependent on illustrations often the author and the illustrator don't know each other they're paired together by the publisher isn't that amazing I didn't know that
1: ah interesting interesting okay I know if you do if you do uh, some publishers will let an author have some say I went to a book Mm -hmm. conference years ago when I again this was at uh, College of New Jersey and the author said the cover looked odd to me. It was a, a cover of a woman with a mustache, and it kind of went with the story, but it just struck me as odd. And she said, "I had nothing to do with it." She said, "I don't like the cover, and I had nothing to do with it." I tried to have input, but the publisher's like, "No, we've been doing this a long time. We know what works." And wow. she had no say. So she had no say. So in it, so it's interesting uh, that that you share that. Now, what have yeah. readers? When did Three Muses come out, and what have readers been saying about Three Muses?
0: Um, so Three Muses came out in September of 2022. And so um, you didn't ask me this, but... The experience for me was incredible, has been incredible, because I was trying to get a novel published for 20 years. So to have wow. your words on a page and finally get out in the world was like the greatest miracle for me. So readers have been incredibly receptive and kind and generous. And usually I get a lot of comments like, oh, my God, I had to buy this for my whole family because I loved it oh. so much. They, Which I really appreciate. And they, but it's it's. It has some seriousness, and so people say, you know, I learned a lot. One of the most common, common comments, which I want to share with your readers in hopes that they'll be interested in reading it, is a lot of people said to me, I don't know anything about ballet, I don't care about ballet, but I loved the ballet in this book, because you don't have to know anything. You just, you know, it was just kind of immersive. So I love that readers appreciated that. I didn't expect them to know anything about ballet. It's just really a way that John and Katya communicate and their love story is complicated and parts of it are sad. But I feel like that's also like life, right? We don't have we we have complicated lives all of us.
1: So I wanted to ask you, you said it took you twenty years to publish a book. Had you ever yeah. had you ever considered self publishing or no, that was like not even I on did. The table for
0: you. Well, first of all, I wrote about five novels before I got this one published. So this is my first novel, but it's actually kind of secretly my fifth.
1: Okay. <laughs> um, okay. And
0: I kept, I kept getting up to the gate and not getting through. The reason I didn't consider self-publishing, there are two reasons. One is that I was working full-time, and I felt that if I self-published, I would have to, like, take a year off from work and, and do the marketing because basically – you you really need to work to get your book out there. I mean, we all do, even if we have a traditional publisher, but it's hard, you can't get your books into bookstores. It's very complicated to do that. But the second reason is I thought about it a lot, and my understanding is the books that succeed the best in self-publishing are science fiction and fantasy and romance. Those three do really, really well in self-publishing. This kind of a book I didn't think would do so well with self-publishing. So that's my answer. I mean, do you have authors who talk about self-publishing? Because a lot of people do it very successfully.
1: And some authors, uh, call, uh, I want to say Colleen, is it Colleen Hoover?
0: Hoover. She's like a New Yorker. Almost
1: all of her books come out are just, and she started self-publishing. There's I another. know,
0: I know. There's a few
1: other that's authors. It's really that, impressive. That, that, yeah, yeah, they hit the New yep. York Times bestseller list, self-publishing a book, or the first book came out, and it just yep. took off. And who, who's yep. to say, whether it's self-published or traditional published, why a book takes off? And some books just do. Harry Potter was not expected. They were hoping to sell 5,000 copies. It, either yep. it was 500 exactly. or 5,000, and that book took off. Yeah, exactly. They didn't even And expect. she went,
0: yeah. Because she went to, like, 20 publishers who turned it down. I mean, there's so many stories like this. So you have, like, during those 20 years when I was trying to get various books published, like, I have to admit that I cried a lot. I was very sad. But I also kept hearing these stories about, you know, it takes yeah. a long time. There's so much about persistence here. And Colleen Hoover is kind of amazing. Yeah, she, she, you're right, her books just totally took off. And now she's being published by a mainstream publisher. But she did it all herself at first.
1: Yes. Now, your book, Three Muses, is also available in audiobook. And for our listeners, we have listeners who are avid book readers, and we have listeners who are also themselves authors, some traditional, some some hybrid, and some uh, strictly self-published. Can you tell us, for our listeners who are – it might really pique their interest – can you tell us about the process – you went through a traditional publisher, so you might not know the inside story. But just in case you do, or were at some involvement, the the process of creating the audiobook version of the story.
0: Yeah, no, actually, what happened was. Thank you for asking. What happened was, um, I was so lucky. I'll be honest. I was a person who got long COVID immediately. I was like March. I was the girl who was in bed March like thirtieth for a year. So I was oh, having a not good wow. year during 2020 and apparently at some point during that year I submitted three I have no memory of doing this because I was too sick but oh I submitted goodness. three muses <laughs> I submitted three muses to a contest and it won the contest which was an incredible miracle so the oh contest was sponsored <laughs> I felt so excited the contest was sponsored by Regal House the publisher they choose one novel a year that gets an award. It's called the Petrichor Prize, and then they publish it. So that was unbelievable. And during the course of negotiating the contract, I asked if I could retain the audio rights. So a book is a little bit like a pie. There, you know, I haven't been lucky enough to have this be a film, but they're film rights, TV rights, audio rights. And sometimes the author keeps some of those. Sometimes the publisher keeps some of those. I kept the audio rights, and I had an agent who sold the audio rights? So that's a separate. Um, that was a separate transaction, and then the publisher of the audio book, which is narrated by a beautiful actor named um, Marie Hoffman, she did a beautiful job. They asked me what kind of narrator I wanted, and they also asked me to make a voice memo. So I gave them some specifications, and then they gave me a choice of two possible people, and then they. I made a voice memo them of all the words that might be hard to pronounce <laughs> so that's kind of cool so so um you know there's some hebrew words there's some german words there's some french words because of the ballet there's some names that are hard to say so i repeated they give me a list of words you know say these twice into your phone so that's what i did and so the audio book is was available on day one and so you can get three uses in either ebook audio book or paper, it's available on Amazon, and you can order it from any independent bookstore wherever you buy books.
1: Why did you do? The, why did you do the audiobook separately? That's not a question I was going to ask you, but just curious. For again, our listeners who are authors themselves, why did you take that approach? Was did you get to keep more of the royalties off the sale of the, of the audiobook? Yeah. Doing it, that
0: yeah, way? yeah, 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 yeah. I got to keep more of the royalties, and also I. I think I was wrong, but at the time, I thought I would uh, have a better chance of selling the audio rights. My publisher oh. for my next book, they they own the audio rights, and they're doing fine selling audio rights. But at the time, I didn't know that. So okay. both those reasons. Now, you also write
1: short fiction. Which is easier, Martha, to, to write short stories or, those, or full-length novel, Which is easier for you? Uh,
0: it's so funny. I don't know how to answer it. It's just like the weirdest thing. It, I always think in terms of a novel. So not all of my fixed short fiction, but a lot of my short fiction, I have um, excerpted from finished novels and then kind of made a short story out of them. I have a couple of um, short stories that for which they just are a totally separate thing. I think that sh- writing short stories is as different from writing novels as like sculpture is from painting. Like I think there's a really big difference. And short stories, you have to get a lot of stuff in you have to get a whole life, a whole plot in a very short period of time, so it's a special skill set and I enjoy writing them, but I am much more focused on writing novels. I don't really know why I just don't know why it's kind of instinct, I guess
1: I've always thought that the shorter the piece, the harder it was anyway.
0: I you agree. only have a small
1: a small to to tell that full story. Uh, uh, right. and, and leave the reader feeling like they they really were uh, uh, immersed in the in a full story which you only have so many words to tell it in now that leads me into saying congratulations on the jiggerlow <laughs> i'm a push car prize oh my goodness,
0: oh <laughs> Thank my goodness you so much oh I have really been excited. absolutely
1: ex- so that's your second you 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 won an award for three muses and then being nominated that is really impressive introduce us to the gigolo what's happening in this short
0: story yeah so it's um a short story about a person who works in a law office in the early 1980s and she has a office mate who is blonde and like you know this very kind of corporate looking white guy with fancy shoes and the more she fits with him, you know, they're sharing an office. And in those days you had to share a telephone too, or you answer each other's phones. There were no answering machines. So she finds out from listening to him on the phone that a, he's got this incredibly wild life with a gay man who has the name of um, some who he calls sunflower. And he's also, and then he confides in the woman narrating the story that he is a gigolo for a woman on Park Avenue. And so it's a lot about that, and it's the dawn of the AIDS crisis. So unbeknownst to either him or Sunflower, their lives are in incredible danger because they're living very, very promiscuous lives.
1: Ah, interesting. Now you also review books for media outlets such as NPR, Words Without Borders, and The Millions. And you've you've seen that it had an inside view on the impact of a book review. Which have you seen have the most
0: impact? Curious. A short one or two. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, well, so I don't know if your readers are familiar with T.S.A. Lehman, who wrote Heavy. He's a major black intellectual, absolutely spectacular writer. And I, I um, review pretty regularly for the website of NPR. I'm not on the radio, but they also have written book reviews on their website. So you could Google me on their website. You'd see a lot dozens of reviews. I pitched that review to NPR. I said, this is going to be a big book and you need to pay attention to it, and I would love to review it. So that's one example. Um, there have been a couple of others where the author has become very well known afterward and I don't I would never take responsibility for that, but I would say that I helped to the book along because I think a big part of being a book reviewer is sharing what you love with the book reading public. And I'm always looking for books that the public might not get through another means, so that's one example. I was a very early reviewer for Sarah Broom's Yellow House, which became a bestseller. Um, there's really a lot of examples, <laughs> but I want to I want to be reviewing books by lesser-known authors, by women, by people of color, by authors from smaller presses. You know, just a little tiny bit out of the mainstream that might not reach readers' eyes otherwise.
1: So, so here's a question. And, uh, like on Amazon, I think Amazon, more than uh, any of the other uh, book re- book retail outlets, r- people really pay attention even out of it's just not just a book but a product that you're purchasing a lamp or, 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 or a, a computer. They pay attention to reviews a lot. If, do you think they pay more attention when it's the review written out? I know you, t- you do different types of reviews, written yeah. out or – is it just that that star, three stars, four stars, uh, based so on your? interesting.
0: Sense? Yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. I um, am less familiar with Amazon. I spend a lot of time on Goodreads, which is um, actually owned by Amazon. It's a book rating website. I really don't understand. There's tens of millions of people on Bookreads, and I'm sorry on Goodreads. And the rating system is, as you say, one you know, one to five stars. But I've noticed that some of the most famous, beloved authors have ratings that are like three point something out of five. Like Toni Morrison. I mean, I'm not laughing because it's kind of ridiculous. But like she, some of her books, like her best genius literature, has pretty low ratings on Goodreads. So I personally don't pay that much attention to ratings. I suspect you're right that readers pay attention to ratings. I don't do a whole lot of rating on either platform because I prefer, I think it starts it as some kind of simplifies things. I prefer like a longer discussion. So I put my book reviews up, but I don't really want to be rating books too much because I feel like we're better off getting a little more information.
1: Okay. Now who are some of your favorite authors and what is it about their work? That,
0: that you really mm-hmm. appreciate. Well, I love Toni Morrison. I think she opened a whole new world, really to white readers as well as black readers and to everybody. I think she's got an incredibly um, insightful view of human nature. I love her work. Um, I love. Oh, gosh. I, I'm looking at my bookshelves. I could go through about 1,000 books. I love Shirley Hazard. She was an Australian British writer who died about ten years ago. I love um, Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. I love T.S.A. Lehman. I mean, yeah, I I read one of Colleen Hoover's books, which I like. I I I think she's doing important things for the world. I, I mean, I feel like the messages communicating are really important. Um, so the, I have lots of favorite writers. And I never could just choose one, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, okay. And I
1: definitely want to um and I think we will have time very quickly, but I wanted to also ask you what what writing process do you follow? Do you do outlines, character sketches? How do you really start to flesh the story out?
0: Yeah, I usually I did outlines a lot in my professional job, but I usually just start right in. I have an outline in my head. I don't usually write it down. I sometimes start in the middle and work out. But I basically go with the chaos um, process, which is <clears throat> just start, and then I spend a lot of time moving the order around, deleting, adding, changing. It's pretty chaotic. Um, but I every time I try to make an outline, I never look at it. <laughs> so... So I usually just write my way through.
1: Ah, they call them pantsers. <laughs> You Just go along. Yeah, right by, like a city exactly. of pants. And a lot of people who've come on here do. And then uh, I think it was was it Stephen King? As he, uh, he does I think he swears by outline. Some people they they, they exactly. do outline some character sketches. Some just sit down and start writing, and then they'll go back and change it as they go exactly. forward. The more is. Re- they know as they keep writing the story what what to do next what to take out what to change exactly that's more like me yes can you share three to four steps that you take that you have found to be effective at getting the word out about your books
0: yes well first of all very thrilled to be talking to someone like you i've done a lot of podcasts i've done i wrote a lot of Articles about my book that I tried to get placed in different outlets where readers like to read. I'm very engaged in social media. I, uh, I'm on all the platforms, and I want to share with your readers that I have a weekly Substack newsletter. It's Martha Ann Toll, like my name, and I don't. I write about all kinds of reading stuff and stuff I'm thinking about. It. It's super short. It's always really short because I don't want to burden people with um, a lot of information. So I put out a weekly Substack. I'd be totally thrilled if any of your readers wanted to subscribe to it. You can go directly to Substack, or you can um, just go to my website. There's a link there and I'm active on Instagram and yeah, Facebook. So all of those things, I know one magic way to do it. I think you've got to be really engaged. I also love, I did a lot of bookstore talks. I love, going to book groups. I always say this when I'm on a podcast um, or radio show. I'd love to zoom into your book group. I love talking to book groups about my book. Um, My contact information is on my website. So all the ways. I think there's just not one way to do it now. Does your
1: publisher do a lot of marketing for you as well? Or is it mainly up to you?
0: It was mainly up to me. The publisher, um, and they're very clear about this, um, they're only 10 years old, and they don't want to invest in marketing right now. Right now they're investing in authors. So they're very good about getting it into bookstores and getting pre-publication reviews, and they're very supportive. But I had a big role in marketing it.
1: Uh, Okay. Very, 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 very quickly, you talked a little bit about Do It, for one. Can you just tell us a little bit more about it? And when, I know next year, when is it expected to be released, and is it finished
0: yeah it's finished I mean I mean I finished my part my editor at the press is editing it so we're now going through the the publisher edit so in that sense it's not finished but I finished my part but now she's sending me edits and I'm I'm redoing parts of it um it will come out early in may 2025 it's set in philadelphia and it's a love story but it also talks about grief because all of us have both of those in our lives so on page one there's a husband and wife who are a professional two piano team they're an older couple the wife dies on page one and the husband is like oh my goodness I don't didn't just lose my wife. I lost my entire professional career. So I lost everything. The son, Adam, who's in his late 30s, um, is a professional violinist, and he's at the graveside saying, wow, mom was never there for me. So he's dealing with all this grief about emotional abandonment, and he it's his love story. He has to figure out how to find love because he realizes that, He was missing a lot from his mother, and maybe it kind of handicapped him in his ability to find the rights, his journey to love.
1: Oh, my goodness, I love your stories. I love the the plots you come up with. Now, saying that, we learn so much about ourselves, our writing, and I think as an author, you look back over your book and you're like, oh, my God, I put a little bit of myself in there. Oh, my God. I interview people, and they'll tell me, oh, I'm in the hiking or mountain climbing or whatever negative out of characters in the hiking or mountain climbing. But can you can you what did you learn about yourself since you started writing your first novel?
0: It was unbelievable and it's a very hard process to describe. So my mom died really really suddenly in 1999 mm-hmm. and after she died the floodgates opened and I'm still trying to understand that one was one one important thing was she really believed in me and she really told me she thought I could write and that was before I even had conceived of myself as a, as a writer I mean I always knew I was writing but I would never have called myself a writer at that time so I think that's part of it but the floodgates just opened and I found like I don't know I just learned so much I learned so much about the role of memory and childhood and authenticity and emotional truth like you're not what you're writing is fiction it didn't happen to me but you the author in fiction will get in a lot of their emotional truth and that's Mm -hmm. such a challenge Mm -hmm. I love the challenge of getting music and dance on the page which if you think about it's really hard because they're so ephemeral and you know pass so quickly in time so all so many things I feel like I've learned so
1: much. Oh, it's. I think it's just, to do anything creative is really it blesses the people you share your art with, and it blesses the artist. I, I really, truly, I, truly believe that. I, I agree. We, Thank you. Yes. Oh my goodness! What a what a pleasure. We are out of time. So if you came in, uh, and we have people listening, so many channels, not just Blog Talk Radio, they, all over the world. There's just so many. Platforms people tune into off the shelf from uh, globally. We have had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Martha and Cole. And again, she was she studied ballet. She, she's a, a professional a book book reviewer, and her her story, The Gigolo, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, which is pretty impressive. And she's also studied law. If you please visit Martha online, she's the author of the book Three Muses. And uh, we just got to talking briefly about duet for one. Her website is Martha Antol, M A R T H A A N N E T O O L dot com. Martha, I cannot thank you enough. What a pleasure you was, an absolute delight. And as I tell our listeners, especially those who've been with us for eighteen years, we've been a, been doing this now for eighteen years. I mean, it's just I can't believe it's been this long. And for those who listening for the first time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as I tell you, you are awesome. You are incredible. You are amazing. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Martha, thank you so much. I'll send you a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Bye for now.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate so much the chance to talk to you. Thank you.
1: You thank you, too. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, bye-bye.